Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. And we're back. Happy 2018. We are ringing in the new year, uh, before our North Korea series, with an interview episode. I talked with Sarah Fraser, and she is the author of a book called The Last Highlander, which is about the life of Simon Fraser, and he was a Scottish clan chief who lived in the late 1600s and throughout most of the 1700s. His life was eventful, as you will hear, and you might have noticed that there is some commonality between the surname of the subject and the author. We will get into that. So, enjoy. Sarah Fraser, hello. Hi, Joe. How are you? I'm doing excellently. Just to begin, uh, your book, The Last Highlander, what's your encapsulation of it? How would you sum it up as quickly as you can in like 30 seconds or so? Well, I think that it is a story about a thwarted and disputed inheritance of a Scottish Highland clan, but it is set against a period of enormous turbulence for both the Highlands and for Great Britain and in fact, for the whole of Europe. So you've got this fantastically colourful backstory with a real tormented odyssey in front of it. It is all about a period of enormous turbulence and change for Great Britain. So your central figure is uh, Simon Fraser. He is uh, the 11th Lord Lovat. Um, who's he? He is a significant figure in British history in the period between about 1680 and 1745. And he is, he is a clan chief. What's happening here is it is a Game of Thrones in the UK. There are two families, the Stuarts and the Hanoverians. And the Stuart family are the rightful heirs to the thrones of Great Britain, but they've been put off the throne because they're Catholic. The Hanoverians have been brought in. They are called George the First, George the Second, George the Third. In America, you know George the Third best because he started the American War of Independence. But my book is He was right in a musical recently. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> sorry. That's okay. So his my when the Stuarts were thrown off the throne, um, a political movement began and it was called Jacobitism because the Stuart that was thrown off the throne was called James Stuart, James II. And Jacobus is Latin for James, so hence the Jacobites. And Simon Fraser's story is caught up with that. And he is, he is a remarkable man. He, he is somebody, he's known by about four four names, actually. You've called him already Simon Fraser. He's also Lord Lovett. He is also to his Gaelic-speaking kindred in the Highlands, Clan Fraser. He is Mach Shimi Moor. That means the son of the great Simon. They, they would never call him Lord Lovett. That's a British title. And the Highlands is a different country, really. And then in London, he eventually becomes known as the old fox for his deviousness and his cunning. So he, he moves in many different worlds, but he was born to none of this. And that's really what I like about his story. He's born the second son 
of the second son of a chief. Well, that's quite a long way out. He should never have been the chief. He should never have entered history. And you and I should never have been talking about him. Uh, before we go further, I also wanted to uh, get into how you came to the topic and uh, your connection with it and with him. Well, the surname gives it away. I'm a Fraser. Yes, it um, does. <laughs> by, by marriage and habit, I think I'd have to say now. I've been a Fraser for over 30 odd years. I married two of them. That's enough, isn't it? That good, enough is as good as a feast, as we say here. I married two. Mm-hmm. I've given birth to four. And I've written about another one. Uh, I'm the daughter-in-law of another famous Fraser, actually, who was a war hero in World War Two? He was called Shimi Fraser, Lord Lovett, and he was immortalized in a movie called, oh, what's it called? Oh, I've forgotten what it's called. Anyway, um, he was a commando war hero, and Churchill sent him to uh, negotiate with Stalin, saying, I am sending you the mildest mannered man that ever slit a throat or scuttled a ship. So I've got involved in this family through their history and mythology and because I live here in the Highlands. So uh, let's get back to uh, Simon Fraser or uh, Lovett. Um, What is his early career like? What is his uh, early life like and how does he get involved in politics? Well, he's brought up here in the Highlands and you would think that he was completely cut off from the rest of the world, but he wasn't. I mean, it's a rough and rugged world, but it's also very civilized. So we are, just to let you know in terms of geography where we are, if you look at the UK, you go almost to the top and we are in the top of the Highlands. We're west of Inverness, which is the capital of the Highlands. And the Frasers were one of those clans that were competing for control of large chunks of the Highlands. And Simon as second son of a second son, was reared to contribute. So he was schooled in Inverness. Then he went to university in Aberdeen, where he followed a sort of general degree in Latin and Greek. And he learnt all about um, philosophy. He read Machiavelli, Ends Justify the Means. That was going to be very useful in his later life. But he would also naturally learn how to use a sword, and weapons. He would know about negotiating with other clans. He's he's being set up to be one of the leading gentlemen of Clan Fraser. That's it. That's his youth. And he was involved um, with a certain amount of violence early in his career. What happened with that? Ah, well, this this really is where he enters history, because what happens is Clan Fraser, Simon's in his late teens. We're getting to the end of the 1600s and Scotland is being controlled by what one historian has called a bunch of egomaniacs, bigots and embezzlers. Uh, So that's politicians for you, isn't it, Joe? Um, And what happens is that Clan, that some of these men, these charming men, are surrounding Clan Fraser. Clan Fraser is on the point of going under. It has suffered through about three generations a series of deaths. The chiefs have died early, leaving only a single heir or no heirs. So the widows have been running the clan. 
but this is a martial society. So what you do is you marry the widow off to the nearest male heir. And in this case, by 1700, the nearest male heir is our Simon, because the chief has died, Simon's older brothers died, everybody ahead of him on the family tree has died, and he's climbed right to the top. Incredible. Um, except for one thing, that two men, the brothers of previous widows, a man called Lord Murray and a man called um, Mackenzie, they are preying on Clan Fraser. And frankly, by the time Simon becomes the heir, they are ready to tear it apart. And by 1700, Clan Fraser is about to go under. It's about to be torn apart and half of them will become Mackenzie's and half will become Murray's. It's a good old fashioned clan feud power struggle. And had it not been for Simon, this is precisely what would have happened, um, except he stops it. And the way he stops it, well, first of all, he, he, you know, he doesn't just jump into violence, you know, our boy. He's civilized. He offers to marry the widow. So you've got the widow, the widowed Lady Lovett marrying the male heir to the Fraser clan. Marvellous. Business as usual. On we go. Mm -hmm. And um, the problem is that her brother says, no, thank you very much, because what he does not want is suddenly a strong male Fraser chief, a power source in the heart of the Highlands. And he refuses. He says, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, you can go away. And what Simon does is uh, take matters into his own hands. He gets a bunch of friends. They mount horses. They gallop over the hills to Castle Downey, which is the Fraser clan stronghold. And what history says is that the parson was called for and the bagpipe blown up because he asks the lady Lovett, would she like to marry him? And she too refuses and he's not going to take no for an answer. So wah, the pipes are going and the parson is shivering and shaking in his boots and he is forced to marry the widowed Lady Lovett to young Simon Fraser. And um, the next morning, all hell breaks loose because she is the daughter of a marquis. She's related to crown heads of Europe. And this young upstart from the Highlands has forced a marriage on her and her family are going to pursue him to the gallows. Basically, that's what happens. It's um, he's not. I always say Simon's never a he's not a good man, but he is a man of incredible energy. And he has he has a motive. He's, he's not merely power hungry. He has a genuine um, culture of clanship where you look out for your own in clanship. The overriding virtue is called Gion. It's protection. So he is there to protect his people. The best way he can protect his people is by being their clan chief, not by allowing the clan to be divided up between these predatory Mackenzies and Murrays. But they, they're not having any of it, basically. His number's up for the first time in his life. So uh, what ends up happening to him after this whole episode? He, uh, I believe, gets in a bit of trouble after that, right? Well, yes. 
I mean, they it really what what you're getting is an old fashioned clan feud between Murray's and Mackenzie's versus Fraser's. Uh, but they are more powerful than him. And Simon has to flee. Also, these men control the Edinburgh law courts. The Edinburgh law courts are infinitely pliable in favour of the powerful at this time. And they charge Simon with an old fashioned Scottish uh, law called Rapton Hemsucken. And what it means is ravishing persons of consequences in their own homes. Ordinary people like you and me don't worry about it. But persons of consequence, it's a capital crime. And he is charged with ravishing Lady Lovett in her own home. And he is found guilty and sentenced to death in absentia, I might add, because by this time he's fled. He's fled the country. He has to. He loses everything. This is a very low point. Just as he's become the clan chief, he ha- he loses it all. Okay. So he goes in exile. And how does that play out? What happens is that um, he goes to the Stuart exiled court in France because he knows the Stuarts, too, in a certain way, are suffering from a disputed inheritance. They've been put off the thrones of Britain and he has been put out of his clan. And the Stuarts have a very, very powerful cousin. He is Louis XIV, the Sun King. He had the most powerful king in the known world at that time is the first cousin of these exiled Stuarts. He also, usefully enough for Simon and the Stuarts, happens to be at war with England over another disputed inheritance. I mean, it really is Game of Thrones um, for the first decade or so of the 1700s. And Simon asks Louis XIV to help back an invasion of England. And that will put his Louis Stuart cousins back on the throne, return Britain to Catholicism. And Simon thinks on the back of that, he will sweep north to his clan and he will be restored to his clan and his enemies will be swept out of the way. And he spends a lot of time courting Louis. Louis quite likes him. He, he quite likes uh, young Simon. But um, unfortunately, none of this happens because um, what happens is that eventually um, Louis will only ever support an invasion if it suits his larger European game plan, his geopolitical position. And it never quite suits it enough. So Simon kind of jacks it all in and he then offers to come home and sell out Louis and the Stuarts to the English and tell them all their plans. But but no one trusts him by this point. And, and in the end, he gets locked up for 10 years because they've just got to keep him out of the way. He is too active by half. He is a, an agent. He's a double agent. You, you just never quite know where he's going to end up. If you had to speculate, I mean, I think this is one of the most dramatic parts of the story about how he is in exile. He teams mm. up with uh, the French. Uh, then he agrees to spy on the French. Um, do you have any like insider inkling as to where maybe his like true loyalties lay or like what his, you know, politics or national feelings or religious feelings like genuinely were? Because it could all get very spy movie and murky at this point. Oh, yeah. I mean, with none of these people, can you easily identify people's motives and ambitions? They're all, no one knows, you know, it's kings off the throne, kings on the throne. You've got to back the winner. 
and the winner may think tomorrow the opposite of what you're thinking today. So you've got to be pretty nimble. But yeah, if you're asking, is Simon ever a man of principle? Yes, he is. His principle is defense of the clan. He sees himself as the clan chief and clan society is based around the chief. The chief is called Kyaun Kini in Gaelic. Uh, Kyaun is your head and the Kinyuk is kin. He is the head of the kindred. He is the head. They are the body and he will do anything to preserve them and help them prosper. And he does not believe for one moment they would prosper if they were simply assets stripped and split up between Mackenzie's and Murray's. And that at heart is his politics on a local level. On a national level, he's a Scottish nationalist. So as the union of crowns, ha uh, of parliaments happens in 1707, he calls it cette union infernelle, this infernal union. He's a Scottish nationalist. So he wants the Stuarts back and he wants them in an independent Scotland. But he is prepared. There's a, there's an awful lot of what we call over here wriggle room for him to be able to get where he wants to go. Uh, something I'm also kind of curious about is with the conflict between the Stuarts and the Hanovers, um, yeah. would that have just been like a dynastic conflict or would that also have had kind of, I guess we would call them now like policy implications? Would they have had, you know, different ways of doing things? Would what have been one of them been more conservative or more liberal? Would they have had different opinions on things like, taxes or foreign policy or that kind of thing? Or was this like a struggle between monarchs that's sort of different from how we conceive of politics today? No, I, I think we're on the cusp here. I think we're on the cusp between the old medieval world and what you and I would recognize as, as a modern political system. There is a religious element, of course, um, in that the Stuarts, the exiled Stuarts are Catholic and the Hanoverians are good, solid Protestants. And that, in terms of the uh, British constitution, that eliminates, that, that eliminates the Stuarts from, from the table. They cannot be considered. Also, the Stuarts have, um, in, they have always believed in the sort of divine right of kings. They are God's anointed monarchs. And that has led them to be very high-handed at times, whereas the Hanoverians will never forget that Parliament invited them and they depend on Parliament. And it is the beginning of what we recognize as parliamentary democracy, the rule by Parliament and by the people for the people, uh, those who are, of course, qualified to vote, which wasn't everybody. Um, the only problem and on, so on a domestic level, they were they, the Hanoverians are much more recognizable to us. Uh, in terms of foreign policy, there was always a problem because they're German. So they had, a, for two, certainly the first two Georges, there's a primary loyalty to defend Hanover, their German, their German electorate. And they involve Britain in some of those European wars. It's a mixture, you know, hey, nothing's perfect. Right. So getting back to uh, to our main character right here, mm -hmm. um, how does this sort of how does this sort of like double dealing spy movie situation that he's in uh, <laughs> end up resolving itself for him? Oh, somebody dies. <laughs> Not him, okay. but someone else dies. It was an act of violence. It's also useful, isn't it? What happens is uh, Queen Anne, the last of the Stuarts, dies. 
and she is the last Protestant Stuart monarch. So when she goes, in come the Georges. And what happens in 1715 is a rebellion. This is a moment when you really could put the Catholic male Stuarts back on the throne because a lot of people, you know, most people are religious. They're uncomfortable with Parliament sort of putting kings on the throne, kings off the throne, deciding who they're going to ask. The whole, the whole kind of elective element to it. Um, they believe in God and they think God has anointed. They believe in dynasty, in providence. And these people are supposed to be the kings. Um, and what happens is Simon comes home and he, the Hanoverians are what you would call very short of friends initially, because half the country thinks they should not be the kings. The first George doesn't even speak English. And then there's a rebellion. And this rebellion could have won had they, had it been better led. And Simon goes in and he, he, the only way he can get back in is by befriending the winning side. It becomes clear quite soon the Hanoverians are going to win, but they're still not any more popular. And he ne he offers them his services. He has a slight problem. He has a slight problem in that he's got two death sentences on his head, I think, at this moment. He's never a man to do things by halves, Joe, not ever in his whole life. Um, and he goes to the Hanoverian dynasty and he says, I will go home. I will settle the highlands. I will retake Inverness because Inverness has actually fallen to the Jacobites who are rebelling to restore the Stuarts. Um, I will settle the highlands and I will keep the peace so that it is no longer an area that need worry you. And the government's always looking for brokers to do that, you know, government agents who will go home and do that. And he gets a pardon and comes home. And, and, and in some incredible way, after a 20 year odyssey through the murky corridors of British and European politics and 10 years in the slammer for being such a nuisance and so treacherous, he gets home and he is Lord Lovett and he is the chief of one of the great Highland clans, 500 years old, the history of this clan in this area. It's the beginning of his heyday. And, and how does his heyday end up playing out? Ah, oh, well, the heyday lasts quite a long time. He gets 30 years uh, in which he marries and he has children and then he wife dies and he marries again, has another child and he rules. So he has a long heyday. It's a kind of Indian summer where he rules the Highlands and he is the servant of two masters. He is a good government officer for the Hanoverians, for the, for the George the first and then George the second. George the second even stands godfather to one of his children. He's the high sheriff of Inverness. He's, he's quite important. In, in the Scottish political establishment. Not as important as he thinks he should be, but he is important. Uh, at the same time, he rules at home with the power of Pitt and Gallows. So, I mean, he can punish his people. He's a very good chief. Uh, if there's a famine, which of course plagues the region from time to time when harvest fails, he will remit rents Half his rents are still paid in kind. They're paid in chickens and cheese. And um, basically, he will redistribute those. He looks after his people. And it's all going so well. And you kind of ask yourself, could you not just keep riding these two horses? He serves Hanover with his head. 
and the Stuarts with his heart. And you think, could he not just hold it together to the end of his life? And the answer is yes. Yes, he could. He could had not Nemesis intervened. Bonnie Prince Charlie. Bonnie Prince Charlie, who's been all over the telly in the last couple of years, you know, with that Outlander series. Bonnie Prince Charlie mounts his clan-powered plunge for the thrones of his ancestors. And he comes calling in the Highlands and says, rise with me. 1745, one more rebellion. Uh, the British are distracted. They're fighting wars for their German kings in Europe. Let's go. And Lovett, at first, to be fair to him, is horrified. He tells him to go home because he arrives so ill-equipped with just a few men and, and a vision, really. And Lovett says, go back, get silver, men, guns, thousands of them, get a proper invasion plan from the French, make sure we know where they're coming. Uh, and the prince says, uh, I am home, you know, and off he goes on his on his dash, really. And he gets to Derby, which is 400 miles on foot in a couple of months. It's a kind of guerrilla skirmishing surprise rebellion. No one expects it. And this is fatal to love it. He sits at home as long as he can. I mean, he's old. He can't go out himself, although the Bonnie Prince does offer him control of the forces. And he said, but in the end, he sends his son out. You know, the, the Jacobites having one victory after another. They take Edinburgh. They hold Scotland. They're down in England. It's all going so well. Surely they can't fail, except they do. Except they do. The Bonnie Prince turns round and Bonnie Prince Charlie and Charles Edward Stuart and the Jacobites retreat north to Culloden Moor. Uh, and that's and the Battle of Culloden in this country. Well, it's the last great battle on British soil. And it's where two worlds collide. This old world of the Stuarts, and there's a lot of the clans involved, and the new modern mercantilist world of the early British Empire. Bang! They come together on Culloden Moor, and there is only one victor. It's a catastrophe for Lovett and the clans. Catastrophe. After that battle, he attempted to um, escape, right? Uh, get out of the way. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. No, he has to. He has to. So what what ends up uh, happening there? Well, he, he Bonnie Prince Charles, Charles Edward Stuart does escape, and the uh, the other officers, the the chief officers, Lord George Mide, they get away. So and Lovett is carried west across to the Western Highlands, to the seaboard, to the Hebrides. And he is a very high value target to the government now because these others have got away. They, you know, they need, they need these symbols of their victory and their triumph. The, the establishment does. And they've got men of war, these ships called the terror and the furnace. So that, that sort of to me always tells you what their attitude to peacekeeping, to establishing the pieces back in the Highlands. Pacification goes into retribution, sadly, really quite quickly. And um, they come across, they catch Lovett on the Western Highlands. And the 
commander of the government forces, a man called the Duke of Cumberland, is triumphant. He says, I imagine this is a greater humiliation than anything that could have happened to the Jacobites because Lord Lovett is so old and ranks so high in command and has titles, you know, from the crown and he's over the moon. He, they, you know, what we would call today, they big him up. They, they really talk him up and they carry him to London. Um, he is the prize in the Roman triumph. They're bringing him back this symbol of the rebellious, wicked highlands. And the crushing of Lovett is going to be symbolize the crushing of the Highland clans. Never, ever, ever again are they going to rise and cause the British establishment trouble. And he's, they keep him in the tower for a year. And again, they're talking about him in the paper. You know, the government has hooked the great Leviathan, they say. And of course, they won't let go until they land him. And he's impeached, excuse me, by all his fellow peers, hundreds of them in the House of Lords. It's not, not an anonymous panel or jury. He goes to Westminster Hall and all these people he's known all his life, some of them, are there. And he is tried by them and found guilty because he is. He's guilty. Of course he is. He's always been conspiring and double dealing and and they've got him in the end right back for 60 years. And each one of the peers has to pronounce him guilty upon my honour. But, you know, he's so old by now. He's 80. And they're all so uncomfortable. Even Lovett's enemy, who is Walpole, he's the head of the of the government at that time. You know, he regrets it. He says he doesn't like seeing old Lovett worried, you know, like a bear being worried by the dogs of the of all the politicians in the land. But he, he's he's sentenced to be hung, drawn and quartered. I mean, it's a traitor's death. Uh, it's commuted, by the way. He is not. It's commuted to um, execution. And that is what they do to him. Yeah, they uh, behead him. And wasn't he one of the last people uh, beheaded in, in the United Kingdom? He is the last peer to be beheaded. I mean, anybody visiting... Uh, Britain and going to the Tower of London, the block and the axe in the Tower of London has his name yet next to it. And he he went to his death. You know, he always had a lot of style, Lovett, as well as a nose for trouble. Um, and he went to his death with a quality, which in the 18th century they called bottom. He showed bottom. It means gusto and dignity. And he went up to his, up to the scaffold and he looked around him and he said, Dulce et decorum est pro patria mori, you know, sweet and seemly it is to die for your country. And he, I've never been able to work out. He certainly didn't mean Britain. He might have meant Scotland. He might simply have meant his clan. And he met his death with huge aplomb. And even one of his enemies, writing back to their neighbor in the Highlands, he said he had been to his execution and he said, you know, they killed old Lovett today. And certain it is, cousin, he's writing to a cousin, that although he lived like a fox, he died like a lion. And as a Highland chief should, that is not in his bed. And I think that's great, don't you? <laughs> What a way to go. What was the kind of, was there any kind of like fallout or consequence um, of his death, you know, in Scotland or otherwise? Well, 
Yeah. The areas that had sent out clans to the rebellion, the rebel areas, were put uh, under martial law for about two or three years. And um, as I said earlier, pacification pretty soon became retribution. Cumberland sent orders out um, to hunt and pursue these vermin through their lurking hills. Now, I mean, that's always worried me because vermin is such a loaded term to, to kind of designate a whole people as vermin. Um, as we know, the last time that was done was in the Second World War by Hitler in the middle of, in World War Two. Uh, and it's a, it's a terrible thing to do. And it, it just shows how embittered it has become. And he said, Cumberland said, um, you know, he was dying to get out of the Highlands. And he said, I tremble that this stinking spot might still become the ruin of my family and this island. And it was, they were just determined it was never going to happen again. And they, they laid waste. Um, Fraser country. They sent a man into Fraser country. He burnt the castle to the ground. He emptied everything out of it. It was brought to Inverness and sold off. Um, the people, they, they transported certain people, executed others. Uh, there was a plan to transport the whole of any clan, every man, woman and child of any clan to the US that had risen in rebellion. And they pulled back from that. And of course, but they crushed them totally. And it was the end of clanship. But clanship as, as an ancient way of life, um, with this great, it's not that they were naive or old fashioned or atavistic. They were, it was just a different system. They were quite commercial minded, a lot of the clans, but it was based on a duty of care to the whole clan. You know, it was not a capitalist society. Although it had capitalist commercial leanings, it was a clanship is, as I say, uh, it's much more based on a, a duty of care to the people of the clan and gone, 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 gone. They turned the chiefs into landlords, break the system. You had to break the system. Uh, how is Lord Lovett or the 11th Lord Lovett rather, uh, how is Simon Fraser remembered today? <laughs> um as well, you know, it changes um, to he he is he is an icon of that period. But I mean, a Victor the Victorians hated him. They said seldom had a more horrible old man met a more deserved end because they, they just couldn't stand his wheeler dealing. But mm -hmm. but to us, he represents clanship. And to us, we can also see that he was. He was um, a rebel with a cause. He had a cause. His his people, his family were under attack and people will do what they need to do. As I said to you at the beginning of this, he'd read his Machiavelli, the ends justify the means. He would do what he needed to do to protect his clan. And he's still very much um, a living person. I mean, there's there is at the moment... Um, he was supposed to have been buried in the Tower of London. There's a traitor's church there called St. Peter ad Vincula and various traitors from over the hundreds of years are there. But uh, there is another um, sort of thread of history whereby several of his kinsmen um, brought him home. And they say that his coffin is lying in the family mausoleum about five yards up the road here. And, so he symbolizes still, and they brought him home. Why did they do that? Because I think in 1745 and in 2017, 
if you're asking what he symbolizes, he is still a symbol of clanship when it was a working, functioning society and of an independent Scotland, because he did stand for that. Excellent. Sarah Fraser, thank you very much for talking with me today. That's a pleasure, Joe. All right, folks. Hope you enjoyed that. Again, the book is The Last Highlander by Sarah Fraser. As always, this podcast is listener-supported. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com to become a supporter. Thank you to everybody who do that every month. We could not do this without you. And give us ratings, reviews on iTunes and the like. I'm on social media, at Joe Streckert on Twitter, on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. And next week, we are getting in to our long-form series, about North Korea. Talk to you then. Bye. (laughs) 